Welcome, this is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 53 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is how to test and evaluate your compliance program. Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, a podcast focused on the legal and compliance industry. Uh, Today, I'm happy to address uh, an important issue, which is the testing and evaluation of your compliance program and how to know if you're making progress, what metrics to use, and to look at the overall importance of uh, testing and evaluating your program. Uh, Before we get to that, I just want to put in a plug for the Volkoff Law Group and our services. Um, We basically, it's our law firm is a boutique law firm. We have uh, myself and five associates. Uh, We've performed testing and risk assessment services for organizations in a variety of industries, including medical device and pharmaceuticals, hospitals, technology companies, manufacturing companies, transportation and logistics companies, aviation services, and we are focused on practical compliance program assessments, due diligence, related services that minimize risk and promote an ethical culture. Uh, If interested, please contact me at mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com, or you can contact me by calling me on my phone, 240-505- one nine nine two. So let's turn to today's uh, topic and why is it important to conduct periodic testing and reviews of your compliance program? Well, there are two basic answers. One, it's a good idea and you learn a lot from it and it's important to monitor and test your program to see what kind of progress you're making. And secondly, the government says you should do it. The Justice Department's Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs, which was issued in February of 2017, uh, identifies the importance of continuous improvement, periodic testing and review, control testing, and evolving updates with regard to your program. The federal sentencing guidelines also state, uh, in, let me quote it for you, reasonable steps to ensure that the organization's compliance uh, and ethics program is followed including monitoring and auditing to detect criminal conduct and to evaluate periodically the effectiveness of an organization's compliance and ethics program. The Justice Department and SEC's Resource Guide to the FCPA, which you know is an uh, important document and one that I often cite, uh, indicates, quote, DOJ and the SEC evaluate whether companies regularly review and improve their compliance programs and not allow them to become stale. Finally, in the healthcare sector, the OIG, uh, HHS OIG's uh, compliance program guidance uh, says, quote, the use of audits and or other evaluation techniques to monitor compliance and assist in the reduction of identified problem areas. So, um, but let's talk about why it's important. We know the government wants Uh, people to do this, but why is it important um, from just your own perspective to conduct periodic testing and reviews? And most importantly, I think it makes your company better. Um, Knowledge is power, as we say, and you can gain valuable insights into how your program is working, whether people are understanding the program, whether they're learning about the requirements and understanding why we have certain requirements. 
Um, it also helps you to understand areas of focus to focus on and improve. Um, determine even whether specific initiatives have been successful. Obviously, it helps to prevent future violations, maximizes your efficiency, and probably most importantly, you learn how to best allocate resources to improve your program, improve your overall culture, and protect your most valuable intangible uh, asset, which is your corporate reputation. So a good compliance program should constantly evolve is the way that I sort of shorthand it. So I always get a question, well, how often should we review our compliance program and how often should we, let's say, conduct an overall examination? Just like I get questions, how often should we do a risk assessment? And it really depends um, on, uh, and some of the factors I think to consider is, one, your size, your overall size, obviously the amount of resources that you have, what your risk profile looks like, and the predictability of your business operations. If you're frequently growing through acquisitions or uh, organic growth, then you really uh, need to take that into account in terms of how your risk profile is changing. You should also always look at your program maturity level. If you're in the beginning stages, you've got to be careful in terms of whether or not uh, it's too early to uh, try to test and evaluate. And you also want to take into account the importance to your culture. And, um, uh, and you want to make sure that your culture uh, is strong. And if it's not, you want to test and evaluate that as well. So these are, si these, are, uh, these are sort of factors to consider. One trend that I've noticed is that people are building in sort of their own compliance review process on almost a continuous basis internally. Um, and so what they'll do is internally they'll um, have a compliance review process separate and apart from anything that internal audit might do. And uh, as a way to sort of have a separate group of people who basically review compliance program operations on a continuous basis. That is certainly a good program and one trend that I think is really uh, positive. However, um, I also want to have a sort of independent deep dive that is done into the compliance uh, program as well, which takes more resources than just sort of the continuous pro process that we've talked about. Um, so, for example, in the continuous process that we're talking about, you know, you might do things on a quarterly basis, and you may even have targeted testing uh, in that way. Um, I like to look at, as well, an annual type of testing, which may be based on uh, sort of several areas to have targeted testing and to look at uh, what are the best ways to target certain high-risk activities maybe your whole anti-corruption program, maybe uh, your sanctions program. Um, and uh, the sort of broad entire compliance program uh, may be done annually, uh, may be done every two to three years. Um, the, the sort of holistic view to me doesn't have to be done annually, but really I tend towards the two to three years time frame, whereas targeted testing, which is in-depth, would be done annually, and sort of the regular 
uh, quarterly efforts should continue uh, on your internal program basis. But you can mix and match the combination here uh, to come up with something that's really appropriate. So starting at the big picture here, there are four key steps in the testing and review process. One is to determine your scope. Two is to formulate your methodology. Three is to conduct testing and review. And four is to adjust your program accordingly based upon the results uh, and the lessons learned and go from there. Um, I kind of like targeted testing programs because I find it easier uh, to conduct and to break into smaller pieces, spread out the pieces over time. For example, limit your focus to certain geogra geographies like a geographical region or a specific um, uh, or a specific country even. Um, and even take specific risk areas and fix a time period uh, within that. And uh, also sometimes in response to areas of concern. If I hear internally there's something uh, there's a concern that people are expressing, I may go in and test uh, in that. Whereas the broader type of testing program may be enterprise-wide. Uh, you may look, you can look at an entire region if you have a very active uh, business in that region, um, and you look at the whole sort of pie, and you obviously still need to define the focus um, because you really can, if you say, well, we're going to evaluate the whole program in Latin America, um, that there's a risk there of biting off more than you can chew. I always find it's better to scope, uh, define your scopes. So what are potential areas of focus that I think are worth, or topics um, that are worth testing on? So tone at the top. These are clearly easily ways to carve up your program and focus on areas that you think are uh, particular risk areas or you're just really interested in. Tone at the top, like I said, training. Uh, do some testing in the training program. How effective is it? How much are people attending? Due diligence always is a good area to test in getting at um, third-party risks and managing your third-party risks. Vendor supplier onboarding process. How's that working and test? Uh, business gifts, meals, and entertainment. If your company's involved in tenders uh, or uses distributors a lot, I would look at discounts, rebates, pricing, uh, sponsorships and events, uh, competitive bidding process, which can lead to anti-corruption issues or antitrust uh, in terms of bid rigging or uh, collusion, uh, research and development, uh, interactions with healthcare professionals. Uh, for healthcare providers, I would look at incentives, coding, and billing for Medicare, Medicaid, and quality of service issues. These are all issues that you can target your testing at. Uh, charitable and political contributions, your hotline and how the reporting system is working, data security as a general issue, mergers and acquisitions. If you do have uh, fairly regular mergers and acquisitions as part of your growth strategy. Um, another area that I've seen people do is joint ventures. Pull, you know, take a look at your joint ventures, pull them apart, see what's going on. 
investigations, internal investigations, even types of investigations, conflict of interest allegations, uh, fraud or theft allegations, those types of things, and culture of compliance, always looking at your ethics and uh, compliance. And I've already uh, talked about the importance. I've done a separate podcast on how to monitor or how to measure or how to improve your uh, culture of compliance. So there are lots of testing methodologies. Um, obviously, with the new uh, sort of push on metrics and data analysis and data analytics, that's something that you have to be careful about and uh, focus on because there are now new tools and there are new ways uh, to generate the data and there's ways then to test based upon that data, which is great. Um, you can also use surveys, questionnaires, uh, individual interviews, focus groups, and one of the things that I like to do is transaction testing or control testing. So if you have a control for due diligence, let's say, um, and people go through due diligence to onboard a third party, um, let's pull a sample uh, of some of those uh, specific transactions. The method of testing, like I said, and just to give you an example, can be a control-focused testing, and you need to create a testing rubric. You can also have open-ended questions, uh, and you can have document requests and reviews, and then you can also, of course, have related interviews uh, to follow up on documents, for example. You also need to define the time period, uh, how far back you're going to go. Obviously, this relates to how much uh, you are, um, you know, how big an area uh, and how big an issue you're going to look at, and also then how far back in time, when was the last time this area was tested. Uh, the location, uh, you know, does it include certain subsidiaries, um, and where are they located? Um, other parameters you can do for like gifts, meals, and entertainment. You can have thresh, you know, cost thresholds or revenue thresholds. You know, we're going to look at every gift above $100 or above $50, that type of thing. And then you also have to consider who's going to do the testing. Is it going to be internal versus external? If internal, which departments will conduct the testing? Oftentimes, I see compliance and audit um, teaming up in this area, which is a great thing. And you want to also address the issue of privilege and trying to do as much as you can in terms of underprivilege, uh, but not necessarily depending upon this, the type of testing. If you're testing, let's say, internal investigations, obviously you want to, to the extent those are conducted under privilege, you want to preserve that privilege. Other aspects of Testing, however, may not have to be privileged, and, and I don't think you should be hypersensitive about it uh, in this area. So like in control-based testing, let's talk about that for a minute, you can review policies and procedures, identify your evidence-based controls, and break down the controls to tasks. Okay, So for example, you have approval forms, signatures, registrations, screening documentation, expense reports, receipts that may be required, contracts, fair market value calculations in the healthcare area, import-export licenses. These types of tasks can be broken down, and, uh, and then you can test for, did we have all the re requisite approval forms? Were the signatures included? 
Were the registrations included? You know, is there documentation as to the screening? Um, all of these things are going to, through a sample-based technique, are going to give you important um, insights that you can use uh, based upon your testing process. So, for example, let me get, let's talk. I'll talk you through like a sample control-based testing rubric. Um, when engage, let's say the test is. Uh, how you engage your third parties and following the controls that should be in place. And you can have a satisfactory or a needs improvement or a deficient. Um, and you set up sort of a scoring system for how you're going to determine whether needs improvement or deficient. And you can have a comment section. This is like a chart. And so, for example, uh, we'll look in a file for a particular third party. Let's say it's a distributor. And we say, is there a business justification completed? Was it obtained? Uh, were the services obtained at a reasonable cost? Was appropriate due diligence conducted? Is the supporting documentation provided? If any red flags arose, were they appropriately addressed? Is there a, uh, an engagement memorialized in a contract, which includes, let's say, description of services, description of conditions for payment or of compensation and expenses, statement that a party was not chosen as inducement, you know, a representation of compliance with conflict of interest rules, uh, standard anti-corruption terms and conditions? Um, was there legal review and approval of the contract? Uh, were the invoices and payments reconciled? And then any other observations to note. These are, um, these are the kind of testing rubrics that I look at. And one advantage to control-based testing is you get a quantitative result. And you can then make certain judgments based upon that. And you can use the same testing rubric over time for consistency, see how people are progressing, and objectivity. Uh, although you've got to make sure that the methodology and the categories are carefully defined. But you can use this as a good measuring stick and a way to quantify an area that is not often data-driven. One of my favorite things to do is to use sampling, and I always say it's the best way to sort of allocate uh, limited resources is to rely on sampling as opposed to looking at the whole universe. And what I like to do in this area is set thresholds for testing, and I use what's called the healthcare sampling technique. In other words, 90% of success, uh, let's say, for example, uh, we say, okay, if we take 20 um, samples and we want to see at least 18 that are satisfactory. If they're not, we'll take more, uh, another, let's say, 20 samples. So the 90% success rate is if we're at 90%, then we go on and we've satisfied the testing. Um, so uh, in one of the areas that I look at is um, corporate integrity agreements in the healthcare sector. And what they'll do is they'll take, they and they require this, two sets of randomly selected 50 or so paid claims and one related to a high-risk area and one for another hospital department of choice. And again, the error rate must be below 5% or a new additional sample, uh, more samples uh, have to be taken. And if you never get to the uh, error rate below 5%, you ultimately just keep 
pulling samples until you may get to the point where you say, well, we've got to look at everything. So a review in this situation is of the supporting documentation, the billing and coding, and guidance to determine whether, let's say, a claim was correctly coded and submitted and reimbursed. And uh, it's sort of like a rolling sample pro sampling process. And I think it's very effective to use uh, outside of the healthcare sector. Okay, one other point from the Justice Department's uh, evaluation of corporate compliance programs. Uh, some interesting questions were included in that topic, uh, and it was uh, in, in the evaluation, uh, which was issued in February 2017, has the company uh, reviewed and audited its, its compliance program in the area related to the misconduct, in this case where you're doing a root cause analysis, including testing of relevant controls, collection and analysis of compliance data, and interviews of employees and third parties. Then the other two questions are interesting. How are the results reported and action items tracked? In other words, where you have follow-up areas and you need to uh, track how things are done What uh, in terms of remediation. What control testing has the company generally undertaken? Some other sample subject areas uh, with regard to corporate culture uh, and some other topics I want to go through really quickly uh, with you, and those include the following. One is for corporate culture, you can obviously uh, measure tone at the top, the role of ethics and compliance in the C-suite business meetings. In other words, does ethics and compliance um, attend business meetings, and are they attending, and are they contributing? The perception of ethics and compliance risks, and uh, the CEO and senior management commitment to ethics and compliance. Another place that I like to look uh, for and test is your intranet portal. Do you have a central location for policies and procedures? Is it used for messaging, culture, and compliance program requirements? Is it accessible? Is it accurate? Is it cohesive and centralized and streamlined? And is there a way to get internal advice and clarification and explanations of your policies and procedures? So there we can focus on policies, hotline reports as well, investigation findings, contracts, internal audit reports, HR-related documents, screening due diligence records, training materials, and your code of conduct. And when you face issues with regard to remediating your program, you have to think of the critical touch points for operationalizing your program. Look for testing your controls with regard to payment systems and remediating them, approval processes, vendor management. How can you work with other functions to strengthen these areas? Uh, and make sure that your remediation steps are mandatory, you repair your process weaknesses, and you improve and focus your training areas based upon those weaknesses and tie it into your cultural concerns. Changes in policies and procedures, uh, to the extent you need to do that, you may need to reallocate resources. You'll look for unnecessary and burdensome procedures which can be updated. Uh, you'll look for technology solutions to resource issues. Automations versus personnel is always a good key trade-off where it's a valuable investment of money into autom automating certain processes. Uh, updating due diligence for high-risk agents and distributors, 
You can remediate with distributor and agent codes of conduct, additional trading for your third parties, and compliance reminders. So develop your trend criteria and analysis and always bring your board management awareness uh, to these issues of remediation and always document the remediation steps you're taking based upon the testing results and setting firm deadlines for when and making uh, people accountable for implementing uh, the remediation. Well, that's it for today and uh, hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back soon on another topic next, uh, next week. Thanks again for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At ethical companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.bokofflaw.com, our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our podcast series. You can contact me at my email address, mvolkoff at bokofflaw.com. Let us know how we can help you achieve your